0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco,
1: And I'm Michael Escabel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up
0: a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a
1: time. Today, we have two very, very special guests, my dear friends, Brian Wallach and Sandra Abravaya. Brian and Sandra are the co-founders of Synapticure, a virtual medical practice focused on neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS. Thank you both for joining us today, Sandra and Brian.
2: Thank you so much for having
1: us. Sandra, would love to start by asking you to give us a brief introduction to Synapticure and let us know what inspired you and Brian to start the company.:
2: Absolutely. Well, I can share, and then Brian, you can feel free to edit your wife as you so often do. <laughs> so uh, Brian and I, uh, we received our diagnosis with ALS in 2017 And Brian, at the time, was a practicing attorney. He's been in and out of public service quite a bit and uh, was at that moment practicing as an AUSA in the Gang and Violent Crimes Division in Chicago. Uh, so he had a very low key job. Um, <laughs> and I was in Chicago, um, also in and out of public service for my career, and at the time was the founding CEO of an education nonprofit. And so the two of us were sort of just living life and had great careers. We had a young family. We uh, had a two-year-old. And essentially, um, the day we came home from the hospital with our newborn, our second daughter, that same day, Brian came back from a neurology appointment, which he and I both assumed would be a routine checkup due to some weakness in his left hand. And he was on the spot with no one else in the room, told that it was highly, highly likely that he had ALS and that he had six months to live. So Brian, in shock, came home. We had the newborn and the two-year-old napping at that moment and just shared and relayed this situation. And we were so shocked because we have no family history of ALS. In fact, we were not even familiar. I mean, probably Brian knew much more so than I was, but in my mind, all I could conjure up in the moment was the ice bucket challenge. And I thought, oh my gosh, that provided a lot of additional resources. I I think they made some really important advancements. Like it's not that bad, right? And Brian replied saying, actually, it's, it's, really bad there there are no cures and this is the prognosis the doctor gave me so as is human we were devastated Brian uh, the first thing he did within an hour of telling me the news was ask if we could take the girls when they woke up from the nap and go to the Verizon store to get more memory on his iPhone so we could take more videos of him uh, because we didn't know what was in store for us. So we were, we were hit hard and we were quiet for some time. And eventually, Brian being Brian, um, you know, just came to me and said, we have got to do something. We met on the 08 Obama campaign and our whole lives have been one of really public service and community organizing and communicating important messages. And we thought, we've got to do something about this. And at the outset, what that thing ended up being was a nonprofit called IMALS, which we co-founded. And it was and continues to be extremely focused on federal policies, federal funding, and FDA regulatory reform and drug approval processes. And over the course of essentially five years since we co-founded IMALS, it has driven an additional 900 million in federal funding. Wow. And to put that in context, the ice bucket challenge is estimated to be somewhere around 200. Wow. So, what has happened is, you know, multi-fold on, you know, what was accomplished with the ice bucket challenge quietly Brian and this network of support has been able to accomplish in in government and Importantly, that happened because we were also able to leverage our background and skill set in community organizing to build a true coalition that is all about patient voice first, caregiver voice first, and drive some really meaningful change in that way. And the last thing I think is important to share about this work to date before we moved to co-found synaptic care is that Brian also authored legislation that became law and it's called ACT for ALS. And it essentially gives expanded access to therapies that are in phase three of a trial to ALS patients who don't qualify for clinical trials. And so this is so critical because just to bring it down to a really concrete place, if 90% of ALS patients don't qualify for a clinical trial, Brian and I included, 90% of us are locked in a burning building. And even if so much of the advancement in this therapeutic space is in the clinical trial pipeline, it takes eight to 10 years for something to move through this process. And so what Brian did by writing this law and getting it passed is to create a pathway for 90% of families with this disease to access one or more of these newer promising therapies before they're fully FDA approved wow. and is authorized at 100 million a year for 5 years and then finally we alongside another ALS organization Team Gleason partnered and we got the social security disability benefits waiting period waived for ALS families because they were going bankrupt by the time they could access it. So that's just sort of the background and the context of our focus, our work. We proudly uh, spearheaded this coalition also to drive forward the approval of two new ALS therapies by the FDA. So essentially, when we started, there were two drugs for ALS, and today there are four. And so what we realized, however, was that There are a number of essentially challenges in the care realm and in the therapeutic development realm of all neurodegenerative diseases that a nonprofit vehicle just isn't as well set up to address. And that is access to care and quality of care, not just in ALS, but in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, a vast number of dementias outside of the sort of the official Alzheimer's category, Huntington's disease, ALS, and there's a major shortage of neurologists, of specialty neurologists who serve patients with these illnesses today for these neurodegenerative diseases. You're looking at wait times of three months to a year for a memory clinic in Alzheimer's for a Parkinson's specialist. And these are terminal illnesses where people, when they receive an initial glimpse of that diagnosis, they are, we are all panicking, right? So how can you say to a family, you might die in six months and we'll get you an appointment in four. Like it's unconscionable and the same applies to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and all of these diseases. So Brian and I said, uh, This is a little crazy, but (laughs) we are going to start a medical practice. We are going to start a company that can deliver care that is accessible in uh, an on-demand fashion, where you can get an appointment within two weeks, which is what patients need, that is high caliber, that is affordable, where your co-pays are around $40 if we're in network have Medicare coverage. What does it look like to give everybody this kind of care? What does it look like to democratize care in neurodegenerative diseases? And that is essentially how and why we started Synaptic Care.
0: Wow. I have chills. I don't know about you, Michael. Thank you. Uh, You guys have done amazing work. Like, Thank you for everything that you've done. Um, This is a really powerful cause that obviously, you know, comes from a place of your experience. And so you know exactly what patients and their families need. <sighs> Where to start. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear more about this medical practice that you started, um, the patient experience, how that's scaling and how you're solving the accessibility problem that you spoke about earlier.
2: Absolutely. And Brian, I should give you an opportunity to correct, amend, uh, <laughs> adjust. <laughs> the only thing that I would add is that with both IMLS and Synaptic Care, I. Uh, I approached Sandra (laughs) to help me launch them, but and her initial answers (laughs) were "hell no." Are you going to have to bleep me out?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No way! No way!
2: We're we're allowed to swear. That was, that was my one edition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Brian's asking if I could talk about how we're building synaptic care. Really one of the fundamental components is Brian and I have a very opinionated vision of care. And um, it's it's very much born from our experience as a patient and a caregiver. And in large part, these diseases put the burden of managing care on the caregiver. And that's for a number of reasons, in part because in ALS, as the disease progresses, it's a physical disability that makes it nearly impossible to manage your care independently. Um, you know, Brian, um, looks as usual, incredibly, uh, nerdy, handsome, I guess I would say, but you know, (laughs) what you don't see or realize perhaps is that Brian can't, uh, move his arms. He can't move his hands. He can't, uh, stand up. He can't walk. And so, people with ALS most certainly rely on their caregiver for care. And then if you think about other neurodegenerative diseases, where the progression entails a cognitive decline differently, but also similarly, the patient cannot be the one managing the care. So with Synaptic Care, we built a company and we built a practice that is extremely focused on how you support the caregiver, who is essentially, you know, your interface, your primary interface. So we think and we feel that that is a differentiator from what we personally experienced, what we saw others experience, and what we knew was really needed by the patient and caregiver community. The other thing that we think is really integral to our opinionated vision of care is that, These neurodegenerative diseases are really on the cusp of a breakthrough. Brian and I do authentically, even with a terminal diagnosis, we think of it as a currently terminal illness. And we are motivated every day to get up because the amount of progress that's been made in the last 10 years, and then even more so in the last five of those 10, is monumental. So it's synaptic cure. We're really focused on how do, just like we've given Brian, how do we give every patient that very aggressively optimistic research care integrated version of care, right? So that everybody who is an enrolled patient has the very best chance to live as long as possible with one of these diseases and ultimately be among the first survivors. And to add to that we built synaptic here as a virtual clinic that is able to see patients in all fifty states. And one thing that was really important to us is that each patient and caregiver have a personal care coordinator who they can call with any issue. And they also have a personal doctor who is specialized in their disease. And the care coordinator and doctor are supported by genetic counselors, medical assistants, speech language, um, SLP specialists, and very importantly, behavioral health specialists, which includes psychologists and psychiatrists who have a specific background in neurodegenerative disease. So we started in ALS. but our plan was always to expand across neurodegenerative diseases. So earlier this year, we worked with the Michael J. Fox Foundation to put together a patient advisory board earlier this year, we worked with the Michael J. Fox Foundation to put together a group of patients living with Parkinson's to help inform our care model And now we are doing the same with Alzheimer's.
0: Wow. Can you tell us about How many patients you guys have served, how many you're serving on a monthly basis, and how they find out about the service?
2: Yeah, it's really exciting that we have just crossed 1,500 registered patients. So in the year and a half since we started seeing patients, we have one of the largest neurodegenerative disease patient panels in the country. We are already a subset of those patients, of course, being uh, and living with ALS, Uh, the largest provider of ALS medical care in the country. And we are quickly growing in our support of Parkinson's patients.
1: So, so Sandra, Brian, can you help us walk the listener through what does the onboarding experience feel like for the patient after that first consultation? You know, obviously, it sounds like you're also supporting the families of of these patients. So could you just sort of at a just... uh, programmatic level help us understand what is what does that experience feel like for the patient and what can they expect?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So coming to your question first, Holly, about how they find us, what has been really special and quite unique about that component is that the work Brian and I have done in the neurodegenerative disease space over the last five years has really given us reach and a platform, right, to, to communicate with patients directly. So it's been, uh, to date, entirely D 2 C, which um, has been amazing. Um, and uh, <laughs> we basically, through Brian's platform or my platform, are able to reach patients. There's been quite a bit of news coverage. We most recently did a CBS Sunday News Feature that was the lead story over Thanksgiving weekend, and have had a huge surge of patient enrollment in the last uh, 10 days, which is uh, amazing to see. And so, just um, that direct to consumer, or uh, you know, sort of outreach and approach has been our approach to date, but we are really deep in a number of conversations with health systems and plans and acos and there's a lot of incredible opportunity ahead to reach patients uh, through system partnerships but um if you are a patient today and you currently sort of just hear about us you go on our website you fill out essentially like under 30 seconds some information that allows you to have that initial intake visit with a care coordinator. And as Brian mentioned, the care coordinator that you meet with in that intake visit is your care coordinator throughout the duration of your care. And so many people feel like this is somebody who kind of becomes part of the family. They just like get to know you. They're, you know, licensed LCSWs or RNs, but they're also just amazing people and but um, one thing that Brian and I did that was also a little atypical is we hired a bunch of former caregivers. So many <laughs> of our care coordinators have personally cared for and very unfortunately lost someone to a neurodegenerative disease. So they get in their heart, their soul and the fiber of their being what it sounds like, feels like, looks like to take care of a family with this Or all of these diseases. And so once you have that conversation, basically, they'll help you sort of chart out the course of the next steps. And so typically, in some of these diseases where the genetic variant that might be at play is incredibly important in getting you signed up for a targeted clinical trial that is addressing that specific genetic mutation, in those instances, that will be highly prioritized and it will be done on a with a rapidity uh, because you know they would just time is of the essence in those situations So if the illness you're navigating is less focused uh, or you know less commonly originates from a genetic variant, it will certainly be a part of what we offer but there are sort of other elements that we would take the patient through next. And and all to say that the care coordinator helps you map it out. They listen, they wanna know where you're at in the process. Really important for everybody to know that you can and should have an in-person doctor who we team up with. And just like in oncology, where you have a tumor board, where you have a very complex, challenging illness, it's beneficial to the patient to have more than one doctor and that they coordinate together because there are a number of things that we can do with speed and, you know, comprehensively that are hard for in-person neurologists or PCPs or even an in-person ALS clinic to be able to manage. So we work in partnership with your current physician. We then get you, you know, in, you know, again, quickly set up with a specialty neurologist, a Parkinson's specialist, an ALS specialist, someone specialized in dementia care. And I have to say, this is somewhere else where as atypical startup founders, Brian and I did it a little differently. People said, don't hire doctors. What are you thinking? Like, (laughs) that's crazy. Really? Yes, because the current or, you know, and I think what's exciting to hear is that people are realizing that patients and caregivers Sign up for a you know highly qualified physician. That is what gives people confidence that they're getting the best care. Signing up for like a nameless, faceless you know uh, care team that um, you know could change with every visit. That's not a physician. That is not a specialist. Is just not going to give the family as much confidence that they're in the very very best hands possible. So this is somewhere where Brian and I invested. We have a whole number of ways that we can scale it effectively from a business model perspective. But importantly, the NPS score for our patient population is ridiculous. It's 96. It's a program where there's very little turnover and the retention rate is largely affected by patients passing away from what are currently terminal illnesses. So, we're so proud that we did things differently,
1: well, Brian Sandra, obviously, you know this is uh, an incredibly comprehensive platform and solution for the patient. So it takes capital. and uh, wondering if you might share with our listeners, you know, have you guys raised capital to date and and who have been some of these uh, investors that have supported you on this journey and and what's next on the fundraising side?
2: Yeah, absolutely. well, it was amazing at the very outset to have our first investor be the team at Google Ventures. So Incredible. also appreciate how special that is um, and how fortunate we were to be able to join forces with them from the very, very beginning. And then since then, have been able to partner with the team at Optum Ventures and at Martin Ventures and at Rock Health and a number of angels and other funds. All right, go ahead. And <laughs> the <I'm> number one. <laughs> I think it's important to share with potential patients that once you enroll, You'll have your first meeting with a care coordinator in less than a week. And you'll be able to meet with one of our expert neurologists in less than two weeks. So we move fast. so that we can help you get the best care. And as Sandra mentioned before, I think one thing that is really important is that we are building a tech platform that will enable us to innovate. Oh, to automate. A lot of the most important parts of the process. So for us, we are able... to help patients and caregivers to receive the most comprehensive information to help them decide what clinical trials to enroll in, like or supplements to take? Yeah, I, just to give you a really concrete <laughs> example in terms of Michael and Hallie, what that care process looks like, you know, <laughs> while it looks different for every patient because we're completely tailoring it to each patient's needs, what's important to know is the burden is off of me as a caregiver. Last week on Monday, Brian had an occupational therapist come to our home. On Tuesday, he had a physical therapist come to our home. On Wednesday, he had an appointment with his ALS physician. Talked about medications, need for prescription refills. On Thursday, he had a visit with a psychologist, a therapy visit via telehealth with a Synaptic ear specialist. And so I didn't have to organize any of that, right? Incredible. I was able to depend on the care coordinator to make that real. And every week, what Brian needs is going to be different. But the amount of care we're getting and giving is just really differentiated from what's available today.
1: Well, Sandra, I mean, Brian, it's so inspirational.
0: I, you know, actually one last thing I'd, I'd love to touch upon and Michael, I'd love to hear your experience. You've worked with so many founders founders that are couples. What are Michael? Like what is, I feel like there's some stigma against it. Like there's some concern that like, if something happens in the relationship, what happens in the company, but then we've also seen really excellent examples, um, of couples that have succeeded working together and thinking of, um, Kevin and uh, Julia Hartz, the Skimble founders, they were a couple. What, Michael, I'm just curious what you think, um, for folks that are out there that are thinking about starting a company with their significant other, what, are, um, what should they look out for? And then Sandra and Brian, I wanna hear from you guys, the tips <laughs> for those couples before they do it.
1: Yeah, you, you know, for, for me, one of the biggest challenges when you bring a co-founding team together is personality risk. Right? Is this going to gel? Is this going to work? And the one incredibly powerful thing about couples starting companies is you've de-risked that. Uh, you know, the the and it'll put a lot of strain and a lot of stress. And I've seen it, but uh, in in many ways it can be a very strong positive. And what I've I've observed, full disclosure, I've had the chance to work with Brian and Sandra now for quite some time. Uh, you watch an incredible uh, duo, a real yin and yang synergy that produces an even greater outcome for the business. So, Brian, Sandra, curious on that. And then again, I want to hear yeah. about an Ordinary Campaign super quick because I know I know we're coming up against time.
2: Well, one of the most important things I've learned over the last five years is that it is more important to be grateful, and to be right. And I think that's one reason why Zandra and I have been able to work together so well. How about you, Sandra?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: you guys, that's great. Although, is the undercurrent of that that you're letting me win because you're grateful and not because I'm right? I'm just gonna think back now. <laughs> I mean, I, I gotta think about it now. I gotta think. I don't, I, I'm <laughs> in the last five fights, because he wants to be grateful. All right, it's very. I'm giving you a hard time, Redslit. It's like a beautiful sentiment, Brian. Also, you can tell. Brian is like, hope and change. And I'm just like, you know, little hard edge. <laughs> we are yin and yang, Michael. I think that's like, it's very accurate. Um, I think importantly, Brian and I um, fell in love working together. Um, we met on the 2008 Obama campaign in Manchester, New Hampshire. And Brian was the political director. And I was a communications director for the state. And so it was a very high stakes. <laughs> situation, and um, we worked extraordinarily well together and complemented each other very well. and so um I think it's almost like our most natural way of operating to to work together. I will say like the hardest part is we're both like obsessive workaholics and what could be higher stakes <laughs> than building a company to help cure terminal illnesses and one of which you are living with and hoping to survive. And so, you know, we just, we work too much. And it's very hard to draw the line between yourself and your personal life and and this mission and this work of building the company. Um, so, like, sometimes we'll be going to bed and Brian will be like, i i have a question and i'm like if it's about synaptic cure <laughs> i'm not answering if it's about oh, yeah. our six or our eight-year-old daughters you can squeeze one last question then. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah and i think you you see that dynamic in no ordinary campaign. Mm. Which follows me and Sandra. and a few other ALS families and shows how we have really changed the ALS system. <laughs> to make it a disease state that has authentic hope. And I think um, Katie Couric has since become um, an executive producer of the film. Amazing. Yeah. And where, where can people watch where, where, and when great question is it out now? Great question. Uh, it has been on the film festival circuit for the last year. And so important to share that it received the audience award <laughs> at both the Chicago international film festival, where it premiered um, and also at South by Southwest where Amazing. president Obama came and joined us in person and oh, wow. <laughs> it had a Brian in the film, no big deal. And um, and then just a month ago, it won the jury award, which is the one you know decided on by film credit, uh, critics. And so it's quite competitive to win the jury award at such a prestigious uh, festival. And we won the jury award uh, in Virginia. So wow. we've been on the film festival circuit. We've done a lot of traveling. We took fifteen trips in twenty twenty three. Um, wow. And uh, we are now in negotiations with streaming services. So
0: we will keep you posted. Well, congratulations. Um, I, both of you, thank you so much for joining us today. The one thing I wish our listeners could see that Michael and I see is the way you guys look at each other. It is so special. Um, So thank you for joining us and listeners. If you want to learn more, go to synapticure.com. Both Brian and Sandra are also very active on social media. So give them a follow. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you made it this far, it means you probably like our podcast. So please do us a quick favor and leave us a nice review. So more people can discover closing time. Thank you so much. And that's Closing Time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time.